0: Yale Podcast Network. From the campus of Yale University, this is To Live in Dialogue in LA. I'm Aaron Tracy. It's not often that I bring someone to campus I've never met before, someone I'm just a fan of and think would be great for my students to hear from. I'm really excited today to have Sophie Zucker coming in. Sophie is a young actress and writer currently doing both on the breakout hit of Apple TV's new slate Dickinson The show has gotten rave reviews as a modern retelling of Emily Dickinson's story starring Haley Steinfeld It's a super weird compelling series with contemporary dialogue and sensibility. It's got a very specific tone that can't be easy to write Sophie started off playing a small role in the show and impressed the showrunner so much with her ideas and her tweets and her personality and samples that she got hired to write for season two. My favorite story Sophie told about getting to write for Apple TV's inaugural slate is that during a read-through of an episode she wrote, Tim Cook walked in to watch. Just walked into the writer's room and sat down. She said he had no notes. Now, I get nervous when anybody hears my writing read aloud. Imagine if one of the richest men in the world Your boss's 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 boss sat in. Bizarre. And about the coolest first staff writing gig I can think of. Sophie's also had roles on The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel and Comedy Central's The Other Two. And she performs her own work all over New York, including at Joe's Pub, Union Hall, Brooklyn Comedy Collective, Second City, and UCB. Sophie was really generous to come up to campus during the filming of Dickinson. She schlepped up here, spoke to my class, had pizza with some students, and is about to do this larger event, all when she has a 6 a.m. call time tomorrow morning. Sophie is funny and talented and excited and can speak about breaking into the industry with a freshness that most of my guests can't. And as someone on the inside of a giant tech company's inaugural TV season, she's a really interesting perspective on the changing TV landscape. I am thrilled to have her on. Here she is, live from campus, Sophie Zucker.
1: Thank
0: you. <laughs> you have a very unique I have story, a weird story about how you broke into writing. <laughs> so this is your first year on staff of a show, right? Yeah.
2: Yeah. So, um, so I'm Sophie. Uh, I. Um, Basically, uh, I was doing a lot of comedy in college and live comedy, improv, sketch, all of that kind of stuff, and I thought that I wanted to maybe write for TV, um, and I moved to New York after uh, graduating from Oberlin a couple of years ago, and I moved to New York and I thought that maybe I would get an assistant job on a TV show and sort of work my way into a writer's room that way, which is how a lot of people do it, you know, their first job uh, the showrunner's assistant, then they're the writer's assistant, then they're the writer. Um, and so I actually got an assistant job to the executive producer on a show called The Good Wife. And I was a really bad assistant. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I left. We, we parted ways um, <laughs> after a season. And I decided that I was just going to do Live comedy, work a day job and do live comedy and perform as much as I can, could, um, and kind of cross my fingers and hope that something would happen. And so I was performing a lot, writing my own material, doing stand up and improv, and then uh, a manager saw me at performing literally in a basement uh, and signed me, and then sent me to an agent who also signed me. And then I was actually auditioning a lot. Um, I was submitting for writing jobs sometimes, but I was really doing more acting, which is what most of my credits are. I've acted on Maisel and the the Mindy Kaling movie Late Night and a couple of other things. And who was getting
0: you those acting jobs? Was Uh, it just? A mix
2: of my manager and my agent. And then they sent me an audition for Dickinson for the first season, um, and I got it. And I was a part on Dickinson that recurred, so I was on set for six months, uh, most days, and I got really uh, close with the, with the creator of the show, Elena Smith, and she um, asked for some writing samples, and then hired me to write on the second season.
0: That never happens.
2: Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yeah, it was a. It was a. I've read like every comedian's autobiography and tried to figure out how they got to where they were, and none right. of them said this way.
0: Right. So <laughs> yeah, and I mean that's you know everyone we've had on the podcast, every writer we have brought to an event like this, everyone has a different way of breaking in. Like I think probably becoming an assistant and working your way up is the most common, if mm-hmm. there is said to be a common one. But everybody has a different story. So. On Dickinson in the writers' room, you said there were two writers who were assistants last year. Yeah, is that right?
2: Yeah, so there was um, the writers' assistant from the previous season and the script coordinator from the previous Both season. Got Both up. got bumped up to staff writers.
0: And how big is the writers' room? Uh,
2: there are five of us.
0: Which is which small, is very, very small. small. Yeah. yeah. And so the order is ten episodes. Yeah. And so, uh, did everybody get to write their own episode?
2: Yeah, everybody wrote their own episode. Um, Some people wrote two, and then some writers that were not there for the entire writer's room came in to sort of freelance certain episodes.
0: Right. Yeah. Um, And so which episode did you write?
2: Um, So I wrote episode three of the second season, so it won't be out for, I don't know, a year or something. Uh,
0: But you were telling (laughs) us in class that the process was pretty extreme, that you wrote it very quickly?
2: Yeah, so I... um, (laughs) <laughs> so basically, we write as a room, we outline together as a room, and then um, you sort of take that outline and go home and add your own spin on it and punch it up and clean it up. And then you come back together and you revise those outlines again, and then you take that revised outline and write your episode. And I got the, the, a terrifying email from my showrunner, which was, um, send me what you have. So far, it's such scary <laughs> when I was altogether. in the middle of writing Although, my episode. <laughs> There's
0: kind of a relief in it. Like, you know that if you're not too far along, like, it doesn't have to be word perfect.
2: Right, right. It could have been bad. I mean, that's or, maybe why she was asking me, because I was a first-time staff writer. I right. she thought it was going to be bad. Um, and so I wrote it in two days, and then I sent insane. it to her. I don't know if she knows that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, she does now. Does, okay, nobody listens to this podcast. Okay. Um, <laughs> we can cut out. Yeah. <laughs> we can cut it out later. Um, okay, and yeah. so this is the first time you ever wrote a script that was going to be produced. Um, does Do you think it's changed your writing at all? Um, uh, so I guess the first question is, your show, the, episode three, it has not been produced yet. Um,
2: we shot it. You did shoot it, okay. Yeah. Have you seen a cut? No. Wow. Soon, I think. It's exciting. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's <laughs> um exciting. and you were necess- I mean, r- staff writers don't always get to be on set when their show is being shot. But you're an actress, so you right. snuck your way in.
2: I did. So what was that
0: like <laughs> being on set for an episode that you have written? What was it like working with the crew and the other actors and just hearing your words? By
2: yeah, it was really cool. It was funny. They they actually asked me if I wanted to sit in on you know uh, meetings prior to my episode being shot to sort of like listen to see how um, you know they were planning everything. And then I because I had to be on set for another episode i couldn't join any of those right. meetings so and the and i found it was a similar thing on set that i mostly i was in front of the camera but there were a couple of times where um you know costumes would come up to me and they would be like what do you, literally you know what do you like more this ring or this necklace for this character and i i was so used to being like you know ask, ask my showrunner and they're they were like, no, she sent us to you. Yeah, take this off her plate, Sophie. <laughs> yeah. and Jesus. It's ring. I was she like, doesn't like, have enough to
0: deal with. I know. Um, so were you able to make those decisions or was it scary? I,
2: I am like decisive, but I just didn't want to step on anyone's toes. Right. But yeah, I was like the ring, obviously the ring. Right. Um, and uh, it was really, it was really cool. I mean, this this episode is one of our more um, comedic episodes, and so it was, that's always pretty fun to shoot just because people are having a good time. We're cracking each other up, you know, we're trying new things, different comedic choices. And it felt like, uh, I don't know, really just like a good hang mostly. That's great. Um, I I also, I I didn't even say this, mention this in the um, class, but another weird thing happened with my episode where uh, Tim Cook, who's like the CEO of Apple right. wanted to sit in oh on my one God. of our Table Reads and and we were I think we were on track to read episode 2 or something that's like where we were in our in our um, schedule and then his team requested that we read 3 which oh. was my episode so I also wow. had a lot of confidence I would say going into the shooting. The most powerful
0: man in the Be- world. He's going to come sit <laughs> yes. in on your first ever script. Because a script.
2: tech overlord liked Holy my shit. script. Yeah.
0: Um, so wait, I'm sorry. He did come in and sit in the read-through? Yeah. yeah. And was he quiet? Did he-, he didn't say anything. Did he bring an entourage? Yeah.
2: He was literally like surrounded by other tall men and like was ushered in and ushered out and did oh. not say anything. He said he liked this one character ship uh, and that was it.
0: Wow. Yeah. And I guess if he <laughs> had not liked it, uh, Apple TV would be over.
2: I mean, it would have been a problem <laughs> if he didn't like it. But it, weirdly, I felt a lot of pressure and nobody else seemed that worried, so.
0: <laughs> that's really amazing. Wow. <laughs> that's so scary. Um, and uh, I, w- I want to make sure to, to go back and forth. So do you all have questions about about anything we've said so far or about um, Sophie's career in general? Yeah. Um, like, when it comes to practicing, is it something like you just like, set aside time for yourself to write, or like, do you watch stuff and then get inspired? How does that work? The question is about, yeah, when you write, how you write. The process, yeah. Process. It's, a,
2: it's a good question. It ch- It's changed over the years, also like as my schedule has changed, I think. Um, when I was working a day job and doing comedy at night and auditioning also when I could and submitting for stuff, I would write sort of whenever I could, and I would write um, mostly like live live things for me to perform, and then work on sort of like one big project every couple of months, so like a pilot. Or uh, a screenplay, or a musical. Sometimes I like to write musicals. Um, and now that I have a little more, my time is a little bit more my own because I can I dedicate all my time to um, just the creative stuff. I do uh, sort of try and set aside set aside time, not set time every day. Like I don't like wake up at 8 a.m. to write or anything. I'm also not a morning person, but definitely I like to get at least like an hour in here or there. Um, to to work on whatever I'm working on. And now it's a little more focused because I am a writer. So sometimes, you know, obviously when I was writing for the show, it was writing um, on Dickinson, but now it's like uh, working on other... um, Projects that people are working on with me or people have commissioned for me. Stuff you
0: say like you're that. not a morning person, but you have to wear all these corsets for uh, the show. Yeah. So what time are you getting to set
2: these uh, days? I do get to set like 3 a.m. Or, or 4 a.m. Because <laughs> <It's insane. laughs>
0: you're
1: shooting on Long Island. We
2: shoot a lot on Long Island. Uh-huh. and. um that's a trek. And then it takes like uh, an hour, hour and a half to get into hair and makeup for a period piece.
0: Right. And
2: I don't, I'm not a morning person and I don't drink coffee oh, man. for whatever reason. I
0: but feel like we're screwing you tonight. So tomorrow morning, <laughs> what time is your call? Seven. It's 7.
2: I just have to be seven. on set at seven. Yeah, but you're not going to yeah. get, it's
0: two hours back to Brooklyn. And you're not going to be know. home until like 10 or 11. Okay. <laughs> it's all right. You just
2: like bad. kind of, it's six months of the year. So. <laughs> Fair
0: enough. Um, other questions? Yeah. How does that process look right? Like? The difference between writing in a writer's room and writing like, for your own personal time. Yeah, so the question is about working with a showrunner.
2: Yeah. Um, I mean, first of all, there is just more of a process in a room, right? Like, I. Uh um basically the room is split up we we pitch a lot for the first month honestly of the room we pitch ideas about everything about the series then we slowly block out where those ideas would go if they're to go anywhere where they would go within the within the season
0: but was there sort of a blueprint for the season before you started in the room yeah
2: My, my my uh showrunner had an idea of an arc i mean she thinks about the show constantly and so we did work from that um and a lot of a lot of this writers' room is like su- supporting the the showrunner's vision, whereas you know when I'm writing by myself or even with my friends, there's not as clear of uh, a hierarchy, which can be difficult when there isn't a clear hierarchy. If it's like a truly democratic process, sometimes that's hard. Um, but uh, so yeah, so then the first month we just pitch a lot, and then the second month we work really hard on these outlines, and then the third month we write the episode. Um, And so it is way more structured, although I will say even in this room, it felt very free. There were some days that we worked really late nights and there were some days where we finished what we had to do and we got out at three and we hung out. And then when I'm writing for myself, I mean, it's uh, my deadlines are a little more arbitrary Um, and my process is uh, I like outline and then I write half of it. And then I re-outline <laughs> because I decide I hate everything that I've written. And then, I mean, I could, I could rewrite forever. So maybe that's, that's yeah. what the difference is. You have to stop at a certain point in the room.
0: And so are you a morning, afternoon, or evening writer when you're I'm, just on your own?
2: I'm an I'm a evening, writer. evening writer.
0: Yeah. Uh, do you write in your apartment or do you go somewhere?
2: Yeah, I um, I switch it up, but I will say like when I'm really in the zone, I'm talking to myself a lot. So I do like to write in my apartment. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I'll do I'll do it in public, but.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, well, you know, we're talking so much about Dickinson. Why don't we actually play the trailer? Yeah. Um, this is something that you suggested we look at because you, I got the feeling you were saying there were there are multiple trailers for Dickinson, yeah. and this is one in particular that you found interesting. Yeah. Okay, I thought great. this was
2: tonally captured at the
1: best.
0: All right, cool. Let's yeah. play it, and then we can talk about it.
1: The moment you roll all been waiting for. A female poet, Emily Dickinson. I'm a girl just.
0: A woman should receive an education, but it should not be the same as a man.
1: Maybe they're scared that if they teach us how the world works, we'll figure out how to take over. Mm. Mm. Morning, ladies. I don't know how the two of you
0: fit into such a tiny bed.
1: I don't give up. Oh. 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 I have one purpose: to become a great writer. And there's nothing you can do to stop me. Hey she's so insane of course she's insane she's emily dickinson you need to cut out these sort of antics i have to do something sue desperate times girl ( droplets) don't act like you're dead while you're still alive if you want something reach out grab it sick
0: You'll be the only Dickinson they talk about in 200 years.
1: I promise you that. That was a lovely funeral, don't you think? Mine will be better.
0: Okay, so what did you like about that trailer?
2: Um, I thought it sort of captured, uh, like, the, the balance of comedy and drama and also, um, modern and historical. Right. Um, I found some of the other trailers really hit the drama heavy and this sort of drama with her dad and all of that, but you see like the, the fun she's having with her friends and
0: yeah. So how much is that talked about in the writer's room? Um, you know, how historically accurate you need to be versus, you know, when, when you pitch a joke, like w- what's the ratio of the scenes who, you know, have a basis in reality versus it needs to be weird and funny.
2: Yeah, uh, historical accuracy is like of utmost importance in this show. uh, we read a ton. We do a ton of research about Emily Dickinson, and then also each of the writers are assigned a book about either Emily or some facet of nineteenth-century life that informs the episode they're writing. So my episode in season two was takes place at a, a séance table, and I read a book about nineteenth-century witchcraft and mysticism and feminism, which was super cool. Um, and then my showrunner likes to say that um, anything that we find. Uh, in history, any fact that we find is going to be better than something we could make up. So we do. We are always looking for little tidbits. I mean, I remember I found out that like luxury. I mean, celery was a <clears throat> luxury item back in the day, and so we fit that in somehow. You know, it's just and yeah. that and that's like a punchline now. Um, it's really we are like scouring books and newspaper articles and all of that stuff to fit in as much as we can, and then also the broad strokes of Emily's plot, um, do come from her life and things that she experienced. So do
0: you have a cons- I mean, did you know a lot about Emily Dickinson? Did you, have- do you have a consultant on set? What- we,
2: yeah, we had a, we had like a nine, like an 1800s consultant who we would call, um, a lot about, mostly about the politics of the time to make sure we were getting that right. Um, what do you mean the politics? I mean like, uh, literally like in the first season, um, her dad runs for Congress and we wanted to make sure when we were talking about— and and, all, and the first two seasons are leading up to the Civil War, so we wanted to literally make sure we were capturing the political atmosphere of the time. Um, but... Uh what was the first part of your question? Well, just,
0: yeah. you know, someone who's keeping you on track about Emily Dickinson to make sure, you know, her relationship with her brother is accurate, her relationship with her father is accurate.
2: Yeah, so we have we have this one consultant, but then also my um, showrunner is very close friends with an Emily Dickinson scholar, mm. and so we would often call her, or we would call the Emily Dickinson Museum to, to fact-check certain things. Um, but, yeah, a lot of books. I didn't know, I knew, like, your basic high school Education of Emily Dickinson, which I'm sure I learned in English, not even in history. So I knew like some of her poems Right, right.
0: And each episode is sort of based on a poem or how's that working?
2: Yeah, so each episode is titled after a poem that encompasses the themes of the episode. Um, So it's not necessarily that we are picking uh, these points like Okay, so like for example um she didn't write that first episode i forget what it's titled i think it's just uh, uh death what's the one? Oh, right uh, and so he's I, I, yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah um because i could not stop for death right she didn't necessarily write that when she was in her early 20s or wherever we're putting her um but that uh encompasses again the themes of the the pilot episode mm-hmm. um and so we draw we draw a lot of what we know about Emily also from her poems because that is most of the literature on her. We don't know a ton of specific things about her life necessarily, but we know how she thought about things in her life based on her poems. Right.
0: That really struck me in the in the palette episode when the narrator says all of her poems were found in the maid's chest. Yeah, and that's why we have them. Yeah. What if the house had burned down? Like I know had, that we there would just be no Emily Dickinson.
2: I know, I know, and it was kind of customary. I think we learned to to burn certain things when people passed away. Um, but that just never happened because they were hidden in this maid's trunk. And the maid so. is, a, is a character. You wonder how it.
0: many Emily Dickinson's there are out there whose houses burned down.
2: Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Emily Dickinson is also an interesting one because um, there were women publishing at the time. Uh, so it's, the, the, um, it, it's especially weird that she had all of these poems and they didn't go anywhere
0: because mm-hmm. um, they could have. Right, Yeah. totally. Um, other questions? dynamic life in the writers room between
1: you being like an individual with your own voice and idea
0: for an episode versus the like collective telling the story together and like pushing the narrative. So the question is about sort of the individual versus the collective in the writers room.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think it's, um, I think it sort of evolves over the, the, period of our writer's room. Because I think at first, it's really important to bring everything you have, your own sensibility, and all of your own ideas that you have um, to, to sort of cast a wide net of things to choose from. And then as the room evolves, it's more important to serve the story that is clearly shining through. Um, And I would say, we were talking about this in class, but I, because I'm also on the show, I sort of had a bias towards the characters that I wanted to see um, do stuff in the second season. And that was all like fine and fun to to pitch at the beginning. And then um, once you realize that doesn't necessarily serve the story as much, or it does but in this very specific way, you sort of take a step back. Um, I also, this show was very interesting because I did find that comedically and emotionally, um, I like really, the show really resonated with me and I did find that my, my writing is kind of similar, was already kind of similar to Dickinson. So I didn't have to do a lot of like reworking of my own
0: voice. Mm. Yeah. And so growing up, what kind of shows were you watching? Like what TV shows influenced you the most? What voices?
2: Yeah, um, I, I wasn't allowed to watch TV <laughs> during the weekday, which was important because I would just watch cartoons a lot on the uh-huh. weekends. But I remember when I was 16, my mom was like, you can watch two shows. You can pick two shows, shows and you can watch them during the week. And this was also before like Netflix. I mean, not that much before Netflix. It came out my senior year of high school. But Netflix and DVR and all that. So if I couldn't watch during the weekday, I probably wasn't catching them. But the okay. two that I chose were Gossip Girl and glee Mm. and they were incredibly influential (laughs) Um, i would say i love um gossip girl i loved because i love writing about like teenage girls teenage girls from new york i mean i just find that stuff incredibly fascinating and sort of like dramatizing it and, and making the stakes super high um and then glee was kind of my first experience with like in Incredibly well done satire um satire again of high school but um just these these characters that we totally cared about and were super invested in but they were all in like a high school you know glee club i just love i mean i think ryan murphy is a genius also with like such a specific style and and i don't know i just uh those were really influential yeah,
0: for me. Yeah, yeah for sure for a lot of people yeah um what other questions do we have with all these new streaming services, it's kind of like a height of new writing, new shows being produced. There's a lot going on. What are the benefits and downfalls of this like surge of
1: television, and how, as both a performer and a writer, can you best take advantage of this?
2: Yeah, I think I think a lot about this. Um, I think the the benefit is kind of the same as the downfall, which is basically that. There are way more opportunities to get employed because there is so much content being made. Um, but what that means is, well, two things. One is that uh, the the pay is different. Um, there used to be, you know, only a few shows would Get made and they would have tons of money, these big network shows. Now, these streaming services, it's kind of like the Wild West in terms of contracts and all of that. And so you're not gonna be paid as much as maybe, you know, a, a recurring actress would have been paid or a staff writer would have been paid 10 years in ago. They shorter
0: orders. I mean yeah, shows in 10, 10 episodes. Exactly. So. You're only
2: employed for whatever three months as opposed to the better half of a year. Um, and then also I think it means that whatever writing or acting on TV, whatever I thought that looked like. It, you know, it right now I'm working a more traditional TV job than a lot of my friends who are, you know, creating web content for Comedy Central or writing, you know, I don't know, copy for Netflix's meme account or or, or something like that. There's a lot of ways to get paid, but it's not necessarily going to look like, I think, maybe what we all sort of imagine TV would look like. And even my job is not that traditional because it's for a new streaming service that's backed by big tech. So, yeah.
0: yeah. And do you feel, I mean, it's it's backed by Apple and it's Apple's first foray into television, but would you know the difference that it was not, you know, ABC or...
2: I mean, I think I would know that it's not ABC because, well, do you mean in terms of like watching the show or being on the show?
0: No, I mean, being on the show and writing the show. I mean, it sounds like how how heavy a hand did Apple Studios have in the writing?
2: Yeah, Apple was super hands-off with our process, which I think is not the case in a lot of these network shows. It's like a million people have opinions. So that's been cool. And I've heard that about Netflix, too, That, or at least at the beginning. They were like, sup- let the showrunner have complete creative control. I mean, e- you even see that in the way they have they strike these overall deals with uh, show creators where you just get to create whatever, the next three shows you make, the next show, the, however many shows you can make in five years and they all go to Hulu or they all go to Netflix and that's because these streaming services I think trust these creators so much that they're just willing to, yeah. to fork it over, which is cool um so just want to
0: fork it over but also they're just looking for the icon you know like abc they need to keep the show on the air and they need to keep it you know uh high quality so that it can come back year after year whereas a lot of these streaming companies they just want you to click on however many icons they have
1: yeah yeah Yeah.
0: so it's like let's make it yeah and it'll probably only do two or three seasons and then we'll have another icon yeah yeah do you know if your showrunner has a you know sort of a a long view is able to do this for eight seasons, or is this really a, a short story? I mean, we all know Emily Dickinson for her old age when she was alone in right. Hall of Amherst. Are I, we going to get there?
2: Yeah, I mean, that that is interesting. I think, well, I think there, those are two actually separate things. I think my showrunner does believe that, like, all good stories should end at a certain point. I've heard her say that a bunch. um, So I don't think she's looking to do just, like, as many seasons as whatever. It's not going to be Grey's Anatomy. It's not going to be Grey's Anatomy. But there is a lot of fascinating stuff that happens at the end of Emily Dickinson's life, too, because she goes, like, a little bit insane, and also there's the stuff with her brother and his affair. And I um, think—I know she has talked about creative ways of showing the latter half of Emily Dickinson's life without having to do enough seasons so that Haley Steinfeld is 50 years old. <laughs> <laughs> right. uh,
0: yeah, like The yeah. Crown, just pass yeah. it off. to <laughs> the Helen crown Mirren or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, cool. Yeah. Uh, what other questions?
2: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so, well first I'll talk about a little bit like um, about how my manager saw me because I was basically just performing comedy everywhere I could, whenever I could. And I think that's, uh, you, you can't really prepare for when someone is going to see you, but you can prepare for everything after that. So I was lucky that he came to the show and saw me do improv on a Wednesday night. But then when he asked me if I had any other shows or if I had more material or something like that, I was prepared with all of that stuff. And so then that made that process that much easier because he knew when he finally saw me or uh, that I wasn't just, you know, this wasn't a fluke. That I was just doing this one show and right. otherwise didn't do comedy. That I was really serious about it. I had writing to show to him. And did and you know whatever. he was there that night? No, it didn't. Um, and it was like a Wednesday night. I mean, I had yeah, really was not prepared for that. And then he, uh, so he basically we started like a conversation. He saw a couple more shows of mine, and then oh, he didn't
0: sign you right off the bat. No. He wanted to see more stuff.
2: Yeah, yeah, he saw more stuff, and then and then he did sign me um and then he introduced me to an agent who at first only signed me for uh commercials so she she didn't have to come see me perform live which was cool that she was just willing to to sign me but she wasn't ready to sign me for tv yet um and i think i mean it's because i also i was like 23 and i was like just out of school and whatever. Um, so, so then I signed another contract with her and these contracts aren't, they're not incredibly binding. I honestly think they're, they hurt the agents and the managers a, a lot of times more than they hurt the, the actor. Cause it's not, you're not locked into anything. Y- you pay them 10%, but for most of your career uh, or for the most of the beginning of your career, you're not making any money. So they're just kind of working for free. Um, I did show them to my parents, <laughs> um, but uh, that that was kind of it. I mean, the other thing is you – my manager was a part of this sort of – is a part of the small management firm that uh, not a lot of people know about. My dad was more worried about that. But my agent was part of, like, a bigger agency. So that was all pretty standard stuff, and I think we all felt kind of comfortable going there. Um, and you can, like – I mean, if you can look them up on IMDb and see who else they represent, there are ways to find out if they're legit. You can ask around. I did have a couple friends who were represented by people at that point, and I sort of could ask about that. Um, and so, and then, yeah, they basically just started sending me on auditions and um, submitting me to write for mostly late night shows um, in the city. And did you have yeah. any interviews uh, for late night? Mm-hmm. No. No. I didn't I mean I was acting was the thing that took off and I had like I had one show that was in development with a digital platform that didn't end up the digital platform collapsed. So <laughs> <laughs>
0: wow.
1: didn't so it didn't work, so
2: that was like the closest I got but I really was just acting for a couple yeah. years which
0: was Cool too. I'm curious about the Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which I'm a giant fan of. How yeah. was did you get to work with Amy Sherman-Palladino? I did.
2: So the Marvelous Mrs. Maisel was the first TV audition I ever went on. Oh my god, and I was, you booked uh, it! And I booked it. Um, that was yeah. Uh, I my manager sent me on that. I booked that, and then my uh, agent signed me for TV. <laughs> uh, of course, <laughs> right. Once um, you're making money. So yeah. that was like the I. I, oh my god, that was such a crazy week because I rem- I was working a nine to six day job at the time, answering phones for a shaving startup <laughs> and uh, <laughs> telling men like how to use their razors on their face, which I don't huh. know how to do. Um, but uh, and then I remember I had to leave to go audition for Maisel, and this was also before the show had come out as the first oh, season, really? so I didn't. I knew Amy Sherman Palladino, but
0: from Gilmore for Girls, For Gilmore Girls, yeah.
2: yeah. Um, but I. Uh, I just, I don't know, I was really excited. It was my first TV audition, and my company did not want me to leave to go on the audition. And I was like, look, it's just <laughs> going to be an hour. It's just going to be an hour, and then I'll be back. And I went, and then I booked it. So then I missed the entire next day of work to film it, cause it Sometimes that is that turnaround. You book it one day, and then they bring you in the next day to film. Yeah, and I got fired from my job.
0: <laughs> wow, worth it. Yeah, uh, tell me what the audition was like. Was it for Amy, or was it for the casting mm-hmm. director first?
2: It was for the casting director, and it was a small part. I mean, it was like a couple lines, uh-huh. you know. Um, but uh, it's um... so you
0: didn't meet Paladino so until I you went met to set.
2: Until I went to set, and then she was directing the oh, episode because cool. she directed most of them, the first season, I think.
0: Tell me some observations Um, about her on set.
2: She's awesome. I mean, she has a ton of energy. She's like, it's funny, she you see her at award shows and she's wearing all these like crazy hats, but she's totally like a normal mom Mm. on set like that's what she reminded of she reminded me of my mom yeah um i can see that yeah she's just she's uh you know she keeps it moving that is a monstrous show there are so many extras all the time it's a period piece they have to make everything look like it's you know whatever of the time and and uh she she's like she's pretty down to business you know and she likes to her dialogue is super fast that was like her main thing was you just have to keep the
0: pace up Did she give you any direction? She
2: told me to keep the pace (laughs)
0: faster, faster, faster. faster.
2: Wow! How many takes did you do? Um, It's so. I was there for sixteen hours, and like if you watched, I'm in the finale of the first season. You blink and you miss me. But it was like it just took a really long time. It wasn't even. I mean, they didn't even get my coverage, my shot that much. It was just I was in the background of a lot of stuff too.
0: Still though, also it's a great credit to have. Oh yeah, Yeah. it was so
2: exciting. And then when it was winning, it was all these Emmys. you know, everyone was like, it's your show. I was like, it's not my show. But
0: right. <laughs> <And> <laughs> yeah. all of a sudden you're on two of the, you know, yeah. buzziest <laughs> shows on TV. Right. I love it. Um, okay. Um, so we're not uh, far from the end here, but I want to um, I want to play a clip. Um, I asked Sophie uh, if there was a scene from someone else's work that she wanted to talk about from a craft perspective. And if you listen to the podcast, you know, we do this with everybody. Um uh, Nancy Myers chose a scene from the apartment and Ron Howard chose a scene from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Um you chose a scene from
2: a movie called Down with Love. Starring Ewan McGregor and Renee Zellweger. So, it's can you tell us a little super, bit about it? Yeah. yeah. So, it's basically a rom com. Um, it's it's kind of universally slept on, I would say. So, feel free to check it out. Um, yeah, people it's, always talk about
0: it as like the movie, the unheralded movie, right? Yeah, yeah. I think
2: it's amazing. Um, and I just remember watching it and thinking that I didn't know romantic comedies could be like this, which basically, like, um, All the tropes are there of, you know, the girl and the boy falling in love, but it's super, super stylized. It's set in the supposed to be in the 1960s, but it's also stylized in this way where, you know, they shot it in the 2000s. It's kind of like, you know, a wink to the audience. Um, And there's like this incredible twist at the end. So the plot is... Is interesting because you're watching people falling in love, but then also ends up being this reveal and this mystery. This is actually the twist, so it's a spoiler, but <laughs> this movie is very old. Um, That's okay. Yeah. <laughs> but uh I just I just think it's I just thought it was such a such a great um spin on a on a classic. So. Okay, awesome. Well let's yeah. watch
0: it and then talk about it briefly. And we're gonna start it at what, 154. You can start it at, at one yeah,
2: fifty four or something.
0: 154? Yeah. It's really just like one super long monologue. I yeah, think. yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. And so this is going to be Zellwe- yeah. René Zellweger, Zellweger yeah. doing most of the talking yeah. to Ewan McGregor.
1: Catch up, block You're oh, getting sloppy, leaving a key on the outside when you're busy on the inside. Oh, why the long faces? We're all equal, self-reliant citizens of the world here. I know I am, and heaven knows all men are. And you're with Catch Block, so I certainly hope you are. Anyway, I just popped uh, by for a little sex a la cart But since you're busy, I'll just uh, ring up my crew captain at the hotel. Mm. Cheerio. All right. Now you know, I'm Catch Block. Not said, Martin. There, there is no said, Martin. But before you storm out of here, admit it. I got you. I got Barbara down with Love Novak to fall in love. I'm not gonna storm out of here, Catch. And I'm not gonna admit that you got Barbara Novak to fall in love because i'm not barbara novak there is no Barbara novak huh and i didn't fall in love with Zip martin i fell in love with catcher block and that was a year ago when for three and a half weeks i worked as your secretary i don't expect you to remember me i wasn't a blonde then but you did ask me out and it broke my heart to say no but i loved you too much i couldn't bear to become just another notch in your bedpost With your dating habits, I knew that even if I was lucky enough to get a regular spot on your rotating schedule, I would never have your undivided attention long enough for you to fall in love with me. I knew I had to do something to set myself apart. I knew I had to quit my job as your secretary and... Right. An international bestseller, controversial enough to get the attention of a New York publisher, as well as no magazine, but insignificant enough that as long as I went unseen, no magazine star journalist would refuse to do a cover story about it. I knew that every time we were supposed to meet, you would get distracted by one of your many girlfriends and stand me up. And this would give me a reason to fight with you over the phone and declare that I wouldn't meet with you for a hundred years. And then all I would have to do was be patient and wait the two or three weeks it would take for everyone in the world to buy a copy of my bestseller, and then I would begin to get the publicity I would need for you to, one, see what I look like, and, two, see me denounce you in public as the worst kind of man. I knew that this would make you want to get even by writing one of your exposés, and in order to do that, you would have to go undercover, assume a false identity, and pretend to be the kind of man who would make the kind of girl I was pretending to be fall in love. I knew that since I was pretending to be a girl who would have sex on the first date, you would have to pretend to be a man who wouldn't have sex for several dates. And in doing so, we would go out on lots of dates to all the best places and all the hit shows until finally, one night, you would take me back to your place that you were pretending was someone else's in order to get the evidence you needed to write your expose by seducing me until I said, I love you. But saying I love you was also my plan. I just wanted to tell you the truth so that when you heard me say I love you, you would know that I knew who you were and you would know who I was. Then you, the great catcher block, would know that you'd been beaten at your own game by me, Nancy Brown, your former secretary. And I would have once and for all set myself apart from all the other girls you've known. All those other girls that you never really cared about by making myself someone like the one person you really love and admire above all others you and when you realized that you had finally met your match I would have at last gained the respect that would make you want to marry me first and seduce me later I just wanted you to hear all of this from me before you heard it from your private eye. Yeah. Look, McDonald. got everything there is on Novak, and it's nothing. Novak doesn't exist, except for a P.O. box in Maine and care of one Nancy Brown of 28 Gramercy Park, where she was born and raised. And while our Nancy may have broken a few hearts growing up... I can't find a guy we're looking for, broker. Never mind. I found him. Okay,
0: awesome. <laughs> um, that has got to be like a four-page monologue. Yeah, yeah. Um, sure they
2: did it in takes. Okay, so...
0: <laughs> and you said that that felt like... Um, it felt influential on you. It felt like your kind of voice.
2: Yeah, I mean, I felt... I love, at the end of the day, like I love a good rom-com. I love a good teen drama. I love these sort of... Uh, Things that have been, you know, sort of taken less seriously because they're seen as kind of explicitly feminine. But um, this this one felt like it was super self-aware. It knew that it was a romantic comedy, and you see that she's... Renee Zellweger, you know, delivers this totally unrealistic monologue at the end that reveals she's been masterminding the entire thing, which it it just—it's like a James Bond
0: villain ending. Exactly, exactly.
2: But it's a rom com, right? And I I just—I really—I love to play with the trope. I think Dickinson does that really well too, because it is sort of like this teen comedy, teen drama, but it's set in Amherst in the eighteen hundreds. So I just found the the merging of those two things really uh, cool.
0: Yeah, and it really feels like it's aware of itself in the same way that Dickinson is. Yeah. When you were first hired on the show, did you have to go, did you read all of the first season scripts because you're writing on second season?
2: Yeah, well, I was on the first season, so I had read them right. already. Did
0: you pore over them in a different way, knowing that you would now have to write in this voice?
2: Um, I was a little nervous, honestly, because of how many facts were infused into it. I was kind of like, how do they... How do they do that? How do they, and do ha- all these how do they know all that? I mean, I, yeah. I I write and I Google at the same time a lot, you know, to yeah. make sure I'm writing accurately. But it's a terrible even, habit I know. <laughs> and Don't have you the know, internet. Right. With I know. I know. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah. So I think um, that made me worried. But other than that, no. I because I like I said, I really um, even just reading the pilot episode of Dickinson when I first got the audition, uh, I. Just, I just felt like it was—it was something entirely new to me, but also felt very familiar
0: to my own personal voice. Yeah. All right. Well, let's thank Sophie so much for doing this. Thank you. So great. (laughs) There you go. Thank you so much to our producer here at the Yale Broadcast Center, Ryan McAvoy. If you dug the show please do us a favor and give us a rating and subscribe. You can hit me with questions or complaints on Twitter at Aaron D. Tracy, or email me at aaron.tracy at yale.edu. See you soon.